happen. Hey everyone, welcome to the Weather Trek podcast. We're doing our first ever podcast today with a special guest, Liz Chamberlain. Liz is an NSF postdoc in a shared position at Columbia University, Vanderbilt University, and Wageningen University of the Netherlands. She'll be moving to the Netherlands to begin a full-time faculty job in the autumn of 2021. She's also the recipient of the 2021 Dr. Richard Foss Research Prize for outstanding work in the field of marine sedimentology, particularly dealing with fine-grained marine and estuarine sediments from the International Association of Sedimentologists. Liz, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's going to be really exciting to talk to you today about your research. Yeah, thank you, Hal. Thanks for having me. Liz and I met uh, quite a while ago. I think we were both doing uh, graduate research at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and I think we had some overlap um, with you doing work in geosciences and me doing work in coastal flooding. Yeah, that's correct. I was doing my master's at LSU, and we were overlapping at that point. And since then, I've gone on to do a PhD at Tulane University in New Orleans prior to this. That's great. So Liz, what was the focus of your doctoral research there at Tulane? So I worked on deltas, which are places where the river is meeting a coast, like the ocean, and all the sand and mud that's being carried in the river gets deposited there, or at least some of it gets deposited, we hope. And so I look at the geologic processes that are happening in these types of coastal places over time. And typically over time scales anywhere from very recent modern stuff going back several thousand years into the geologic record. So Liz, South Louisiana has this massive delta there. Were you interested in deltas before you moved to Louisiana or was that something that really got you excited once you lived down there? No, that was something that I became interested in after living there for several years and ended up going back to school for geoscience. It wasn't my original focus. But in South Louisiana, the landscape has such an important impact on the way that towns have developed and the way people live and infrastructure and industry that I became fascinated with this aspect of it. And so I studied that for my master's and then PhD. That's really interesting. So, so you did quite a bit of field work, right? Where you're actually drilling cores into the sediment and, and things like that as well? Yeah, that's correct. Um, we go out and we can core by hand. So recovering sediment from below the land surface. And that sediment contains these clues about what has happened in the past in that landscape. So we can find layers of sand that can tell us about how the river built land there. And then we're also using a geochronology or a dating method that lets us look at how old those sediment packages are. That's called optically stimulated luminescence or OSL dating. That's interesting. So a lot of that, that dating processes, do you do that in a lab? Like when you bring a, a core into like a university lab or something like that? Yeah, that's right. And so luminescence is this type of clock that gets reset by sunlight exposure. So when the grains are moving in the river, or in the air, they might be able to be exposed to light and that sets the clock to zero. And then when they're buried, that clock starts to tick. So it captures when they get deposited. But because it's sensitive to sunlight, we work in a special lab that looks a lot like a photography darkroom where there's a safe wavelength of light that won't reset the clock that we're looking at. That's interesting. So some of the work you explained before, uh, you, you were talking about delta switching, right? Where the rivers can actually change course and some of your research can actually find out what happened geologically. Uh, could you explain a little bit about that to us? Yeah, sure. So 
in South Louisiana, we have the modern Mississippi River that's coming down past Baton Rouge and then past New Orleans and down to the Birdfoot Delta and the coast, but the river hasn't always taken that one pathway. Rivers like to move with time and in the Mississippi Delta, for example, the river has moved several times over the last several thousand years with some overlap between those, but roughly on the order of about one per thousand years, but with a lot of variability on, on that. And every time the river moves, it changes where it's depositing its sand and mud. And when that happens, it builds land in different areas. And so we call this land subdeltas or lobes, and these have changed positions with time as the rivers moved. And we can reconstruct that with these coring and dating tools that I described. You know, talking about these rivers and how they can move and change directions, the Mississippi River is a good example because there's such a high volume of water coming down it. Does that river really want to move in a different direction? And if so, you know, are our levees and our flood control, are they, are they strong enough to keep it in place? Yeah, so the Mississippi River would like to move. And right now it's, it's very heavily engineered and levied to come down past New Orleans into the Birdfoot Delta. It would like to move, or at least some of its flow would like to go down the Atchafalaya, which is a different direction that would take it to a different point in the coast. But there's a control structure that tries to keep it from doing that. Well, that's really fascinating. So you spent a lot of time in South Louisiana, both at LSU and at Tulane, doing a lot of work in the lower Mississippi River Delta, but then your work has also taken you overseas. Could you explain a little bit about that transition and where you've been overseas to do field work? Sure, so I got started working in the Mississippi Delta, and then I had an opportunity to go to Bangladesh and work on the Ganges Brahmaputra Delta that's formed there from these two big rivers, two of the largest rivers on earth. And I've done a lot of my postdoc research there, and since then, I also had an opportunity to work in coastal desert Peru, which is another different and interesting landscape. And all of these relate in that they're on the coast and they're places where water delivery from the continent from a river mixes with the marine resources. And so people like to live in these areas and they end up being very dynamic areas where the people living there, and the culture that develops is coupled to the landscape that they're living on. It makes a lot of sense. A lot of times these deltas and places where the rivers meet the coast, I suppose agriculture has a lot of opportunity in places like that. Yeah, that's correct. Agriculture and fishing, um, resources both from, from the land and from the sea. That makes sense. So, uh, and the, the volume of water, when you see the Mississippi, it's amazing, but I think you had shared that the, the rivers in Bangladesh, like the Ganges and these other uh, rivers are actually putting a lot more volume out. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The Ganges and Brahmaputra rivers are, um, like I said, some of the biggest on, on the earth. And they're delivering about five times the amount of sediment or sand and mud that the Mississippi River is. So that's really a lot of resources there to build land and also to keep up with sea level rise. Would explain that there's just a tremendous amount of sediment moving down some of these rivers, for example, the, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra over by Bangladesh. How does that compare to the sediment coming down the Mississippi River? Yes, so the Mississippi River has about 200 million tons of sediment coming down it, but a lot of that doesn't get deposited on the floodplain or in the marshes because it's so heavily levied whereas the Ganges Brahmaputra has five times the sediment of the Mississippi system. And 
that is more able to build land there because it's a less engineered system through its rivers. So do they get more annual floods from snowmelt and things like that than we would in the Mississippi River Delta? They have a monsoon season where there's a lot of flooding. And so it's, it's a very um, wet season and dry season system there. Incidentally, so do, do you see a lot of elevated homes over there or just homes that are like up on stilts? Like, are, how do people live in a place that, that tends to get a strong flood season? We see some elevated homes and some of them are modern construction. There have been initiatives to elevate, but more of it is it's structures that can be quickly um, picked up and taken down in some of these places or places where the furniture and things within the home can be elevated off the floor level to accommodate flooding. So maybe like some adaptive ways to live with the flooding and, and to, you know, overcome it. Um, yeah, it really happens every year. It's, I think in that sense, it's a bit different than the Mississippi in that we can have a really heavy rain and snow melt where we get these quick peaks in the spring. And here it's kind of in Bangladesh, it's known that the river will flood every year with the monsoon. The degree of flooding can change from year to year. In, a severe year, it can be up to 60% of the country that floods. Interesting, and it sounds like this consistently happens annually, uh, although to different degrees uh, from one year to the next, but it sounds like flooding, they, they've just had to learn to live with flooding and overcome it. In general, how did the landscape in Bangladesh compare to South Louisiana? In a lot of ways, it's very similar. It's um, flat, deltas tend to be pretty flat and built by the river and there's similar types of agriculture. So they have aquaculture, like shrimp ponds, the way South Louisiana would have crawfish ponds and rice paddies. So in that sense, it's really similar, but it's also scaled up in a way because these are such big rivers. So um, the Ganges and Brahmaputra rivers are several kilometers wide, much wider than the Mississippi and the floodplains can be very expansive. Wow, so you know, there you are in Bangladesh, like it, it, traveling almost halfway around the world, right, to do this field work. You get you get out there. So you know, when you got in the field um, in Bangladesh, but also in Louisiana, have you come across times where you know you just have like surprising discoveries, or you're you're discovering things that you weren't really expecting in your field work? Yeah. So one of my more exciting experiences was working in the Mississippi Delta, and we were working on an archaeology project with a colleague of mine, J.R. Mehta, who's now at Florida State University. And we were out scouting for earthen mounds built by prehistoric indigenous people of the Delta, so some of these big earthen mound structures. And we knew where they were, and people had visited them before and documented them and kept records of it, but I'd never seen anything like that in this very flat landscape. So we got landowner permission and went back into one of these mounds and walking through all the foliage and brush that's naturally growing on, on the side of this, the natural levee, the, the floodplain of the river. We come to this big 20 foot tall earthen mound and it was so spectacular because uh, the structure was over 600 years old and that something that big had been able to persist for that long sort of just hidden right off the main road I thought was really exciting. Was this like a kind of 
on an open exposed area or was it more of like a wooded area? Was it something that you could kind of see from afar? Or did, it, did it just kind of surprise you as you came close to it? This one, it, it was a wooded area, which is pretty rare. Most of the natural levees are the high elevation land that's right by the channels in South Louisiana tend to get built on and used for homes or for industry. And in this case, the owner had preserved it and had let it grow over with trees and bushes. That's really interesting and it, you know it drives home the point that these deltas have had people living on them right for hundreds or thousands of years and really having these uh, historic cultures that, are, that have been there and thrived in these places. That's true. It's what a sort of timeless relationship between people and landscapes and especially so in deltas where there are all these resources that give people an incentive to persist there despite things like flooding or hurricanes. Right, there are places I, I suppose that have like high risk, high reward, right? So we have the risk of flooding, but also the rewards of great agriculture and fishing and things like that as well. Yeah, very true. And hopefully the great agriculture and the fishing is on a more present and short time scale where people experience it a lot, whereas the disasters are on a longer time scale. I was talking about these longer timescales of disasters. Could you share about, you know, going into this core in Bangladesh when you discovered something surprising in the record that happened, what was it, over 2,500 years ago? Could you explain a little bit about that story and what you found? Yeah, we were coring in the Delta in Bangladesh for similar purposes of looking at river channel activity and when that happened. And one of these pits that had been dug out for municipal water use and aquaculture for a community, it had this nicely exposed um, side or face of sediment that we could look down in. So we could look um, 15 feet down into the stratigraphic record and see what the history of those deposits was. And in it, we found these big sand dikes. Um, so places where sand had shot up through the muddy layers that were deposited by the river. And what these are recording is a past earthquake event, we think. So where there was a lot of shaking of the ground and it pressurized the sands in a way that they pushed through the mud that was overlying them. And with OSL, we were able to date this earthquake event and we think it happened around 2,500 to 2,600 years ago. Well, so you're seeing evidence in the geologic record that probably a massive earthquake happened in that area. Um, that's fascinating. Was that something that you necessarily expected or was that uh, something that was a little bit of a, a surprise? No, that was a complete surprise. It was um, a really exciting thing to find. And it was sitting on the side of this abandoned paleo channel, so a place where the river used to go that had never really filled in, which is why we were interested in that area. And typically when the rivers take a new path there or evolve, they backfill with sand. They keep enough flow going after the river moves that they still fill in with the sediment that the river is moving. And in this case it didn't, so it told us the river had moved very rapidly from that place to a new pathway. And we dated that as well and found that the timing linked up with the earthquake event. So we think that what we're looking at is this archive that's capturing a big earthquake that's by itself able to shake the landscape and could do a lot of damage to modern infrastructure. But beyond that, something that might be able to move one of the biggest rivers on the planet. Wow, so really geologic evidence of a massive earthquake 2,600 years ago that could have actually changed the course of a, of a very large river. Yeah. 
Wow, that's fascinating just to think about the power of nature to do that. And also, could that be repeated today, right? We know that physical processes can cause all kinds of hazards around the world. I, you know, it makes you wonder, do the, is there local knowledge of the, the risk of potentially another earthquake or, or a, a river changing course in, the, in that area today? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think a good point you brought up last time we talked was that you can be in these landscapes and things can feel very calm and stable and not so extreme, but then they're the setting for these really extreme events, right? We see that a lot in the tropics, right? You, you go to a tropical island or you spend time along the Gulf Coast and, you know, for much of the year, it's just sunny and mild with a gentle breeze and it, it seems like the most tranquil place on earth, yet we know the record shows that some of the fiercest storms on the planet have happened in these places, right? So it's, it's hard to imagine sometimes when uh, we, we get very long stretches of beautiful weather dis disturbed by these very short, uh, very intense catastrophic storms. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. You know, the other thing that the, this earthquake that you found that was in the record, it makes me think as well with like the hurricane record. Sometimes people say, I I've lived here my whole life. We don't get bad floods. We, we, you know, nothing terrible has happened in my lifetime or even my grandparents' lifetime, but sometimes we're just not looking back far enough, you know, and that's really interesting to me that you found this tremendous earthquake really deep into the record. Uh, you know, I, I think these things get lost uh, in the, um, you know, in the history, uh, but yet Mother Nature shows that the, the record is indicating that there is a potential catastrophic event that could happen in the future based on the past. Yeah, that's true. And we're still figuring out exactly what it means in terms of, you know, planning uh, and management and, and, you know, being prepared for these sorts of events. But it certainly is evidence that these type of events can happen and that they can have a very widespread impact because this location was really far from the nearest possible epicenter for an earthquake. It was over 100 kilometers from the nearest possible epicenter. Wow, that is fascinating. You know, just uh, what you found there and just, uh, you know, the science putting the pieces together of past catastrophes, you know, uh, some people may not realize, but Bangladesh also has a history of tremendous floods. Some of the most fatal floods in history of the world happened in Bangladesh. When you were there doing field work, did, did you have that sense of that this is a very dangerous place or like we mentioned before, sometimes was it kind of like, no, this is just a very peaceful, tranquil location? Yeah, no, my experience there, the majority of it was very peaceful in a lot of ways. We were working in rural areas that were sustained by agriculture and it was pleasant and people would come out and talk to us and invite us to their houses to sit and have something to drink. And it was just a very calm and pleasant experience much of the time. The roads were a little more hectic, but the landscape itself where we were working felt very nice to be in. What kind of questions did people have for you, you know, when they interacted with you and you explained that you've traveled such a great distance to do scientific research? Um, that's a hard one to answer because a lot of our interactions with people were through interpreters. We work with um, graduates of Dhaka University from their geology department. And so they came out in the field and helped us with the logistics and the communication and also with a lot of the physical work. So we're really indebted to them. But there was a language barrier where we didn't have a lot of direct communication with local people as far as conversations go. 
Well, Liz, that brings up, you know, some of the obstacles that we have with field work. In this case, you were doing international field work where there was a language barrier, also just a tremendous distance that you had to take equipment. What, what are some of the other difficulties that you came across with doing international field work or even some of the aspects that could be like quite tiring or grueling as well? Yeah. The first time I went to Bangladesh, we hit um, air travel issues where flights kept getting delayed and canceled. And I watched the sun rise and set twice and slept on the floor of the Delhi airport before I arrived in Bangladesh. And so these kind of logistical things can happen or surprises in the field. Um, one day our equipment broke and our, our coring device for obtaining the OSL samples without exposing them to light. But in Bangladesh, my, my doctoral advisor, Steve Goodbread, will say that sometimes nothing feels possible and then at the same time, everything can be possible. So this really specialized piece of scientific equipment broke and we were able to take it to a port for the fisheries and find a man who was a machinist who worked on boats, who was able to drill out this piece and fix it within 20 minutes. So on one hand, there can be a lot of challenges, but there are also resources. What about some of these and, conditions that you faced in the field, you know, both in Bangladesh and South Louisiana? What are some of the harshest conditions that you faced? Some of the harshest conditions I've ever faced were really close to home in Louisiana. And it was when we were doing the work on these prehistoric earthen mounds and this mound that was on the natural levee in the bushes. We did that work toward the end of June in Louisiana and it was hot, it's really hot days. Like we'd get up around, get on the road by 6 a.m. and usually have to stop working by mid-afternoon because of the heat. And there were so many bugs and it was really hard to imagine people living there. It was, it was really tough work. And at the same time, the people who lived there, the conditions were probably different, different for them because when they lived there, the indigenous people, it was a, um, a main pathway of the Mississippi and it would have been a much more freshwater system with a lot of fresh water flowing through it, uh, less overbrush and probably not as buggy and difficult as what we experienced, I would guess. Liz, in, in addition to bugs, did you have any other animal encounters when you were out there, especially like say in South Louisiana in some of these muddy, swampy environments? Yeah, I was working in Cubitt's Gap, which is near where the river mouth meets the ocean, um, down by the Birdfoot Delta. And I was part of a team of four people with one small boat and we were working in teams of two. So my friend Chris was driving the boat and he dropped me and my coring partner off at a location and boated off elsewhere. And we only had walkie talkies to communicate. We didn't get cell phone service there at the time. So my friend and I are, are doing this hand drilled borehole and we see a log start floating toward us in the river, but it's not following the flow of the river that we're next to. And we realize that it's not a log, it's an alligator that's cruising toward us to check us out. And that was, it was a big alligator. And, here we were with just walkie-talkies and no boat in the middle of the delta, no roads, nothing. So it worked out. He cruised off after a few minutes. Liz, any ad advice for a prospective scientists? This could be anywhere from grade school students through high school, college. You know, prospective scientists that maybe are interested in geology, geoscientists, uh, weather, but, you know, really have an interest in field work and travel and that kind of thing. Any advice for the future students coming up? A really good way to 
figure out what interests you and what you may want to work on is to try to get out in the field and get some experience by hopefully working with people who are already doing work in that area. So looking for internships or volunteer opportunities to help with field work. So kind of just getting your feet wet, so to speak, like maybe even with volunteering internships, things like that, uh, maybe through high school and, and college could be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are some good programs for volunteers, too. Did you ever have, you know, did, did you always love field work? Was it something that you grew to love more over time? Was there ever a time where it got so hard that you wanted to quit? When you look back at your experience with field work, how does it play out in your mind? I really enjoyed doing field work. I think it's getting to travel to all these places and experience it and learn about it is one of the most exciting parts of my job. Yeah, Liz, as we go into a post-pandemic world, I'd imagine you'd have more opportunities for travel. You have a full-time faculty job starting in the Netherlands. So, what, you know, what's your future vision in the next several years with your professional life and research? Well, I still want to keep working on the Mississippi Delta. I really, I just find it such a fascinating landscape and there are a lot of issues there to, to research. And at the same point, I want to do new work in the Ganges Brahmaputra system, applying some of what we've learned in the last few years about luminescence dating there. And beyond that, with moving to the Netherlands, I'm hoping to get some local projects there. Kind of like what I did in the Mississippi Delta when I was living in New Orleans, things where I can head out with students for a weekend or even for a single day and we can collect data for projects. It seems like ideally you can kind of keep, you know, some momentum from these projects in the past in South Louisiana and Bangladesh, but maybe work on some new projects in Europe as well. Yeah, and also continuing to work on these issues of coupled human natural systems. So like the work that I've done on the archaeological sites in the Mississippi Delta and some of this work I've started contributing to recently in Peru, where one of the reasons we care so much about these landscapes is because they're really valuable to people and also valuable ecologically as these sort of um, margin landscapes between the land and the sea. And so continuing to work on those type of themes as they appear in landscapes across the world. Liz, I have to ask you one last question. You know, um, have there been times where you look back and finding something in the physical record maybe points to maybe some some insights into cultural or sociological, you know, perspectives of maybe like, hey, the, the river changed course thousands of years ago, and therefore we think this settlement, you know, uh, uh, moved with it or or was not here yet. I mean, sometimes have have you or others found a link sometimes between the physical and cultural? Yeah, so it's really an interesting question. In the Mississippi Delta, one of the earliest observations that the river moved with time came from the archaeological record and from this observation that different motifs of pottery, the designs people make on pottery, tended to geographically zone. So for example, you could have all these sites with pottery that suggested based on its pattern it was 2,500 years old and these were all in one area. And then another area had patterns on the pottery that suggested they were only a thousand years old. And this was this first evidence for lobe switching in the Delta. And more recently, we've been able to work backward with chronology and knowing what we know about how the river moved with time, look at how that affected human patterns over um, pre-industrial timescales. And what we see is that native 
indigenous people uh, over the prehistoric record tended to move with the river. So they'd move into an area a couple hundred years after the river first occupied it and started building land. And that couple hundred year pause would give the landscape time to build up, to become more mature, become less buggy and more hospitable, higher elevation because of the river building land and the fresh water that was coming in from the river. And then it seems people would abandon those landscapes after the river evolved or switched to a new location. Well, Liz, so it sounds like you're saying rivers actually change course. There might be several hundred years where it's laying down sediment. And then after that, it was maybe a, a prime window of time for humans to come and, and habitate those areas to, to live there, have agriculture. But we also could find through the archaeological evidence, uh, pottery and things like that to show that they maybe moved in in a window of time after the river had moved to that location. Yeah, that's right. We see it's a, a couple hundred years in the Mississippi Delta at the sites that we've studied. So the land emerges and then there are a couple hundred years where people don't build on it or heavily develop it. And during that time, the landscape um, changes. It, it becomes higher elevation because of sediments being deposited and it becomes more fresh water and it becomes more inland as the Delta grows toward the sea. And all these things make it a more hospitable place for people to live and to develop um, cultural centers. That's so fascinating to me how the ancient peoples would, you know, adapt and move and be flexible and change with the river um, in contrast to some of the systems we have today that are very engineered, right, designed to keep the river in place. And, you know, we, we have a house and we just say, well, this is where my house will forever be right at this location uh, and, and, yeah. and trying to keep nature in place uh, contrasts quite a bit to maybe what we're seeing in the historical record. That's true. The, the prehistorical record shows a lot more adaptability and we see more similar types of adaptability in other less engineered deltas too. So like we were talking earlier about how some of the infrastructure in Bangladesh is, is able to be moved or modified to accommodate the floods. And it is a problem in long-term design if you say, well, I'm going to put this house here and this is my house and it's going to stay here, but the river doesn't want to stay in one place forever and neither does the coastline. Yeah, these are really challenging questions and I think really good for us to see insights from different cultures, different places and times and how people in different parts of the world have dealt with floods and dealt with changing rivers and things like that. Perhaps lessons that we can use uh, here in the States and around the world moving forward. Liz, thank you so much for taking time. This is just so insightful. I, your, your research and your travels and, and your, your academic history here, you, you've touched on so many important things and it's, I think, really inspirational and I've learned an awful lot myself just from having a chat with you. So thank you so much for coming on WeatherCheck. We'll definitely want to keep updated in, in your progress and, and what you're going to be doing in Europe. And it sounds like you'll be able to, uh, you know, kind of keep a presence in these different parts of the world where you've worked already. So best wishes to you. Let's uh, keep in touch and I'm excited to read about the progress on, on your future research. Cool. Well, thank you, Hal. This has been really great. Um, thanks for having me on WeatherTrack. <laughs>